uh, you've, you've probably heard this story um, at some point uh, in your life, but it's a powerful story um, that I think really um, is the heart of the gospel um, that we profess as Christians. And um, each week what we're going to do in looking at the story is we're going to look at a different character and look through the lens of the story, through that character, uh, that lens and through the perspective of that character so we can, I hope, fully understand uh, Jesus' telling of the story and what it it really means. And so as we begin this series, I'm going to be speaking from the perspective of the father in the story. And just a heads up, um, the way we're going to do this series as a network of churches is each site pastor is taking a character and we're going to go on a rotation. So I'm going to give this sermon to you and then go to the other sites. So um, next week uh, and the following weeks, you'll have some other awesome site pastor speakers that are going to be giving sermons on the different perspectives. But we're going to look at the father figure um, in this story. Now, storytelling is a powerful tool. I was reading an article this last week on really the, the power of, of storytelling. And in it, they've done these studies, crazy studies where they're putting people in like MRI machines and, and watching their brain activity as they're listening to stories and different parts of the brain are, are, are lighting up. But there was one study that they did in particular where they were measuring the brain waves of two individuals, one that was telling a story and the other one that was listening. And they literally watched as um, the brain waves started to synchronize with, with, with the storyteller. The listener's brainwaves started to synchronize with the storyteller. And in, in, in the article, the, the, the researcher said, it's like the brain um, was saying, I'm trying to make your brain similar to mine, the storyteller's brain. I'm trying to make your brain similar to mine in areas that really capture the meaning, the situation, and the context of this, of this story. As if the storytelling, as we listen into it, it, it like synchronizes us and unites us in a very unique and powerful way. And I was thinking about it, maybe this is why Jesus used this method of storytelling so much in his teaching. He used parables, which are stories. And this is a parable that we're going to look at over the next few weeks. And maybe it was part of Jesus's um, you know, the reason he used stories was to, to align us with him and his, and his truth. The unique thing about parables is that um, they were metaphorical and they were stories. And Jesus would often tell them, mostly tell them, and then not, and then let people just sort of linger and figure it out. Very rarely did he explain, this is what this means and this is what this means. As if he wanted the audience, he wants us to sort of wrestle and figure out with what is, the, what, is, what is he telling us about God? What is he telling us about the reality of things? What is he telling us about us? And I think this story tells us something utterly transformational about God. That if we really believed it and experienced it, there ain't no going back. I think we would want to pursue pursue God, knowing the character, if this is truly the character of God in this story, if this is truly the character of the Father, like if he's really this, like for me this much, wow, like this this can and does change people's lives. So let me read for you uh, this parable. What do you guys think the parable's called? Parable of the Prodigal Son? You ever heard that? Did someone say the lost son? You're right. 
The interesting thing is that the prodigal is not anywhere to be seen, but it is the parable of the lost son. And we're going to dive into that word prodigal because I think it's important because when we think of the prodigal, we think of the younger son in the story. But here's the story, the parable of the lost son. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons, a father. The young one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Pause just for a second. Two verses in. It goes quick. But like what's happening here is tragic, quite frankly. You have a father who has two sons. The younger one comes to him and says, Dad, uh, I, want, I want my inheritance. What, what's happening here is, is tragedy. Because um, typically you don't get your inheritance until your parents pass away. So this younger son going to his father while his father's still alive and saying, like, Dad, I want my inheritance now, was basically saying, Dad, I, want, I like your stuff more than you. I love what you have more than who you are. I would rather you be dead than alive. And just put yourself in the perspective of the father in the story right now. And maybe some of you fully understand this because in some ways you've experienced this with your children. But, but if you haven't, or if, put yourself in the perspective of the father just for this moment. Imagine your child doing that or saying something like that to you. And like, what does that feel like? It's tragic because of the pain and the brokenness that's, that's obvious in this, between this, this, this father and, and, and then his son. But the father it just says he divided his property between them. He did it. He, gave, he didn't say no. You're an idiot. You're not getting my stuff. Get out of here. He, he gives him it. It goes on to say that not long after that, the younger son got together, all he had, he's got all this money now, set off with a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything. There was a severe famine in that whole country and it began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eaten, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? Here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. So he takes his money, he goes out, he blows it, he, he, he goes and lives it, the life he thought was going to be awesome. The life that he likely had convinced himself was going to be wonderful and meaningful and, per and worth it. Like he must have believed that if I had this, that was more important, like stuff was more important than my father. And, and so he bought into the lie and he went and lived out of that lie and he blows it all and he realizes he's a mess, it's a mess, it didn't live up to what he thought it would and he's found himself in this completely broken, now new reality for him and he realizes like, you know, my father's servants have a better situation than I do. 
And he says, maybe I could convince my father to take me on as a hired hand because they have a better existence than me. But, but by saying that, what we recognize is the younger son realizes there's no chance of reconciliation and a reestablishment uh, uh, as his son. He doesn't say, well, maybe dad will take me back as his son and give me back everything you know, that I once had. And he's like, maybe he'll take me back as one of his in, you know, indentured servants. Because I blew it. There ain't no way dad's forgiving me. And this is the view that I think a lot of us have when it comes to our sin and forgiveness and, and our relationship with God and that forgiveness and sin and with others. Is we sort of sin, we hurt God, we hurt others, and we just we go, there's no way Maybe things can get a little bit better somehow. Maybe I can get a little bit of healing, but full restoration, full healing, no way. So then he comes up with kind of this like, and I, you can just see the younger son, like, okay, what am I gonna say? And maybe if I come up with the right set of words, like dad will just, he'll, he'll let me, you know, come back. So then it goes on to this. So he goes up and he went, verse 20, so he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still long away, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. It, it's as if the father was, was not only um, thinking and hoping and praying that his son would come back, but he was, he was not only longing for his son to come back, but he was looking for his son to come back. He was watching and hoping that his son would come back. And as soon as he caught a glimpse he responds by running toward his son. Not, there he is. I figured he'd be back. I'm sure he's a mess. I was right. He'd be back when everything fell apart. And now I can sort of, you know, the pain he inflicted on me, I can sort of give a little bit back in the I told you so, he didn't wait for the son to get back and then sort of go, you know, we got to have a talk here. We're going to have to figure some stuff out. Why don't you go sleep in the barn and, uh, you know, we'll figure it out. We'll talk about it. And maybe we can work something out. He like sprints to the son, his son. And the son then goes into his probably uh, memorized, worked out uh, um, speech. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And, but the father said to his servants, he doesn't even respond to his son. He just doesn't give a rip what he has to say. His presence, his actions of coming home were all the father had to experience. Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. The robe the ring and the sandals are important. We're going to come back to that. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and found. So they began to celebrate. And I'll stop there. The rest, there is more to the story. Um, but the father, he, uh, it's obvious he loves his son. But this is an incredible story. This is an incredible story of God's uh, love for us. You know, when I, was, when, I was, when I was reflecting on just the whole the, the story and preparing for this, I was thinking about, like, what, what initiated this story? 
And if you go to the beginning of the chapter, it says this. Uh, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with, him, eats with them. So you have two distinct pe- people in the audience. You have the sinners, the tax collectors. These are the people who are a mess. These are the people who are broken. These are the outsiders. These are the people who do not have it together. These are people who are struggling with addictions and problems and habitual sins and all sorts of things. Like they are not good enough and they feel like outsiders and they're there amongst Jesus. And then the second group of people you have there are the religious elites, the Pharisees, the people who have it together, people who are religious, people who because of their religious activity in in their lives and practices in their life are right with God and they're right. And here Jesus catches them muttering, look, this is a man who not only allows these people in his presence, he actually sits at their table and shares a meal with them. You have one group of people who's in, who's in judgment of the other group of people. And Jesus goes, he tells three stories. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son, which is the story that we just, we just read. As if to say, look, you've got to understand something about God, my friends. I'm not a God who's just interested in scanning the world, looking for everybody, anybody and everybody who has it together. I'm not looking or scanning the world looking for those who go to church and pray and do all those things uh, and have, have everything uh, put together perfectly in their life. I am scanning the world looking for the lost. I, I am scanning the world with a heart that is broken for those who are so far from what, is, what, I, what, I've, what I came to do, what I've done. Who, I, I am scanning the world looking for those who believe that they are, they're, 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 there's, there's no way God could love me because of the sin that I've committed. Or for, or this, I mean, there's no way God could, 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 could forgive me because I've, for how long I've committed these sins and how far I am from God. I am scanning the world looking for those so that they can understand that, look, I go after the lost. I go after the dead, the spiritually dead. I am a God of resurrection. And you need to understand, Pharisees, that I will sit amongst sinners, yes, and I will break bread with sinners, yes, and I will not sit in judgment of those sinners because I need them to know, yeah, you're lost, but guess what? You can be found. You can come home. Doesn't mean that Jesus loved their sin or agreed with their sin. He hated it and he called it out, but he loved them. And people, that group of people experienced it in such a powerful way that they gave their lives to them. They got hope, something that they had not had. And we must understand that this story is telling us a vital characteristic of, the, of, of, of God the Father. He is the prodigal the father in the story. The son, the younger son, uh, is not. When I looked up the word uh, prodigal, this is what came up. Uh, Giving profusely, very generous, lavish, or recklessly extravagant. Now, the younger son 
he, he did, like he was reckless and did these things, did some of these things, but he's not really the prodigal. He's just an immature young male, selfish, thinks that he has it all figured out, thinks that he knows is what's going to bring him meaning and purpose in his life, and he's going after it. Look, I was one of those at, at, at one point in my life, and we were, were stupid. You know, like, you're just, he's an idiot. I mean, just, he doesn't have it all figured out. He doesn't know. He thinks, and he's going to go after it. He doesn't even know he's lost before he's lost. When you look at what prodigal means, giving profusely, very generous, lavishly pouring out, recklessly extravagant, it's the father in the story. He's recklessly generous with his son. When his son first comes to him and goes, I want my inheritance, he gives it to him. He divides up the estate. He lavishly pours out his love on the undeserving boy as soon as he comes home. He doesn't hold back. He doesn't wait. And he restores his son's identity, dignity, and authority. And I told you we'd come back to the robe, the sandals, and the ring. But Jesus didn't put those things in there just randomly. They had meaning behind it. Robe, you would put your children in robes. As a father, your children would wear robes, not your, not your you know, workers or indentured servants. Your, your, your children. So when he put the robe back on his son, he's, he's like, look, you're not like, you're set apart. Like, I, I'm not going to have you kind of work your way back up the ladder. Maybe one day you can be my son again. You'll start back as one of my slaves, but maybe, but I don't know. We'll see how it goes. He immediately restores the son's identity. Think about that. If my kid came to me and goes, I want your stuff. I want my stuff now before you're dead. And then he came back to me. Part of me that goes, bro, like you blew it, man. Like maybe you get some of my, like no. I mean, the son, even if the son would have gone with his stuff and came back to the father and hadn't blown it on wild living, he could have said, well, dad, I'm sorry. Here, I'm going to give it back. Or even half of it. Maybe, maybe the father would respond. Like, okay, we can work something out. But he came back with nothing. He's poured out nothing, empty. And the father just gives him, put, wraps a robe around him, which was was reestablishing his identity as his son. Sandals, uh, he's, he's, he's restoring the son's dignity because slaves went barefoot. So when he gives him his sandals, he's saying, like, he's giving him back his, his, his dignity. And then the ring was, was restoring his authority because the ring would, 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 would often have a signet that you, would, that you would use as kind of your signature to dip in wax on a contract, that sort of thing. And the ring was a sign that, to the boy that the father was giving him authority to once again conduct the family business. It's amazing. In a moment, he restores the son's identity, dignity, and authority. And not, not because the son came up with a really good uh, set of words and speech to convince his father, not because he came back with some of the inheritance. Do you understand that? When you, go back, when you sin and you turn to the father, you don't have to come with your scraps. 
You don't have to come with some really well thought out, perfect prayer. That you go, oh man, if I just come up with a really great prayer and some words and a good speech, maybe God will forgive me. Or maybe I can give him something. Like maybe I could give and that would pay for my sin. In this way, I'll give up some money. I'll give money to the church or I'll give some time and I'll serve uh, in, in this area in the church. Maybe if I just give that, like I could, I could give myself back to my like being in, good, in God's good graces. None of that stuff. The father goes, I don't, I'm not looking for this stuff. The moment you turned, I ran to you. And I immediately restored your identity and dignity and authority. Not because of anything you did or could do or anything you said or could say. It is pure, extravagant, generous love that God is lavishly pouring out on his children. God is the prodigal here. 1 John 3, 1, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. We can think of a million reasons why we can't go home. We have a million reasons why we think God should have given up on us by now. And we try to convince ourselves that if we just clean up our act or we fix things or we come up with the right things to do or say, that maybe we could come home. But this story tells it that that is not how it works in the kingdom of God. It has nothing to do with what we can do. It is all about the, the reckless and lavish love that God has for his children. Do you realize what that means? Have you experienced that love in your life? And I'm going to tell a story because I found myself two years ago completely broken and so far from God that I had over time found myself wandered into an unknown land that I couldn't even figure out how I'd gotten there. And I was hurting and I was in pain. My, my marriage was in shambles. And I f- couldn't live like it anymore. And I thought, there's no way. Like, I, I cannot be a pastor like this. Like, I am, I am unqualified, disqualified. Like, I'm a mess. I don't even know if I'm a Christian. How can I be a Christian this far from God? Maybe if I can fix some stuff, maybe he'd let me back in in some way. And I went to my wife, I go, I got, I'm done. And I need help. And I don't know what to do. And I said, I, I gotta, we gotta go, we gotta talk to Paul Johnson. And I remember driving and like, and I just, I can't. I said to Cal, I said, this is it. This is it. This is it. You know, I, I expect to just share and I'm done. I'm going to give my resignation and, and this is it. And um, I don't even know what to, th- you know, we're just like, yeah, this is it. And, and we went in and we sat down with Paul and I just told him, broke. I just, I'm far from. God, and I just can't do this, and I, I'm sorry. 
I'm sorry it got to this place. And he looked at me and he said, Aaron, I am not going to ask for your resignation. And if you give it, I won't accept it. And it was in that moment that the years of preaching the gospel, the good news of Christ, became real to me. Maybe for the first time, in the brokenness, when you're in the dirt, when you're amongst the pigs, and you feel like you're nothing, and there's no way God or anyone could forgive me, there's no way that I could be healed. And someone says, no, I love you. And it was not the love of, you know, it was the love of Christ in Paul. John Jenkins, uh, I heard him speak, he's the president of Converge. He said, you know, one of the things we're really good at doing is we're really good at shooting the wounded in the church. He goes, when we ought to be out there bringing bringing in the wounded and healing them. And that's what Paul said, I forgive you. And we're going to set you on a course to healing. Heal you. But God loves you. The Father lavishly pours out his love in these broken moments. And I share that with you. And, you know, now on the end of, you know, coming up like two years of experiencing the healing and healing and my wife and I finding ourselves in, in such a better place. And like to, to share with you, like even pastors, like we are not immune to the difficulties of this life and in the battle of sin and brokenness. And I share that with you so that you would know that as messy as things might be in your life, as far away from God as you may be, as, as deep into the shadows that you find yourself, you might be here and you're struggling with things that no one knows about, You've never admitted to anyone. And the thought of admitting it just absolutely terrifies you. That there is hope. As hard as it is to sort of, as the young boy had to go and admit, I'm a mess, dad, I'm a failure. I don't even deserve to be called your son. To stand face to face with the man that he said, give me your stuff because I love your stuff more than you. As hard as that was, he turned, he went And instead of the father saying, you're no longer my son, away from me, I'm done with you. He was welcomed and loved and immediately restored. That for those of you who think that you're just so far from God and there's no way, there's no way for you, it's a lie. This story, if true, is is life-changing for all of us. But maybe in particular, those of you who find yourself struggling in, in sin and brokenness, so far from God, wondering, could God even forgive me? Yes, he can. Yes, he will. Yes, he still loves you. Jesus is saying you can always come home regardless of what you've done, how long you've done it. I'm waiting and I'm looking. 
I'm a mess. Are we getting? <laughs> Sorry, gross. My bad. You know, what's interesting is the ending has no resolution. We don't know how the younger son reacts to his father. But I think that's the point. The father's love, compassion, and grace isn't based on anything with the son. It's not based on behavior. Uh, it's not based on a promise of future behavior. It has nothing to do with what the future might be or what, what the son could do or could offer. And so I just, I hope this story will speak to you about the character of the father, that he is a father that's looking for you to come home. And this morning, you know, whatever might be holding you back from going home, oh, thanks, man. Um, go home. As the band comes up, there is one group of people, though, too, that I think it's important to mention. And that is, again, in the crowd, you had the sinners who were blown away by this message. That uh, for so long they had felt so far, for so long they had felt like an outsider, for so long they had only been identified as just kind of sinner, a mess, broken, ju- you know, judged, all those things. And yet Jesus says, no, you're more than that. You're my children. You're my son. You're my daughter. I love you. I have good things for you. But then you had that group of the religious elite. And I just want to call, because we find ourselves in both camps at times in our lives. But we need to be like the father. Sadly, the prodigals of the world, the ones that are recklessly kind of wandering the world, um, struggling where to go, find the church the last spot that they would, could ever entertain. Because they feel like, why would I go to a place where I'm just going to be judged for what I've done? Should we not be the exact opposite? Should we not, the church, be like the place where where sinners and the lost would run to? Like, if we're going to become like Jesus, it means we've got to become more like the Father. We've got to be people with compassion. It's easy to judge. And when we position ourselves in the seat of judgment, it's, it's a method that we use to make ourselves feel better because someone else is worse, a little bit worse, makes me feel a little bit better. It's, just, it's nonsense. It's not the way of, of the cross. It's not kingdom. We're to be like the Father with compassion and mercy. We need to be the safest place for the lost to come, to experience love. We got to be like the Paul Johnsons. Who go, I'm not going to put another shot in you. I'm going to come along you, pick you up. We're going to go toward healing together. I will be forever changed because of that season in my life. I don't, I don't ever want to find myself back in the dirt and in the brokenness, but what God did in the healing and restoration has forever changed me. Forever. And that's what you can experience too. Because I've experienced it. I can tell you it's firsthand. So just go to the Father. Go to the Father. Let's be like the Father. Let's stand and let's sing together.